0: Hello, hello. Welcome to Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the first Fertility Insights episode of the year. Um, My name is Molly, and I work in our genomics team as our communications manager, and I'm really happy to be joined by three of my awesome genomics colleagues: Tony Gordon, Senior Director of Clinical Strategy and Market Development, Christine McWilliams, our genomics medical director and Jenna Miller, our Senior Clinical Science Specialist. So we wanted to kick off the new year by talking to you about some of the latest genomics publications and thinking about some of the research areas that we should be paying attention to in 2023. So we're going to start with two recently published papers looking at patient outcomes for PGTA and for endometrial receptivity testing. So initially published as an ASRM Abstract, we're really excited to share that a retrospective single center study conducted by NYU Fertility Center has now been peer reviewed in the Journal of Assisted Reproduction and Genetics. This paper focuses on PGTA testing and has shown that compared to standard NGS, PGTA using AI increases euploid classification rates, ongoing pregnancy and live birth rates as well as showing a significant decrease in biochemical loss rates. So, Christine, if I go to you first, could you talk to us a little bit about the patients included in this study and how the study was set up? Hi, Molly,
1: happy to. Yeah, so this study was a a retrospective study, meaning it um, looked at data that had, um, you know, occurred previously, and it was conducted at a single IVS center, um, and it looked at patient outcomes uh, after transfer of embryos that had been tested by PGTA for cycles that occurred either between 2015 or 2020. Um, Over 4,500 IVF cycles were included and represented nearly 25,000 embryos, so a fairly large um, uh, study. Um, and because this was a single center study, uh, the IVF protocols were consistent across the patients as were the embryology practices used. And this approach allowed the authors to really look at differences specifically in the PGTA technologies. And, and just to remind everyone, um, you know, PGTA is uh, pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. Um, And the study looked specifically at different PGTA technologies that had been used across that time span um, and uh, looked at the the differences in uh, those technologies specifically and and how they may have correlated with IVF outcomes. Um, The embryo biopsies in the study were either tested um, by PGTA with a subjective method, which means that a scientist looks at an image of the data, plotted data that is um, generated from the PGTA and makes their own determination of what the result, they think the result is um, versus PGTA technologies that utilize an artificial intelligence based platform, which means that the results are actually determined by mathematics and then automatically reported without human intervention. And the goal of this particular analysis was to determine if humans or mathematics are actually better at identifying embryos that are likely to lead to successful IVF outcomes, um, which in this study were measured as either uh, ongoing pregnancy or birth of a child or perhaps um, reduction in miscarriage rates.
2: Um,
1: So the study also did a second analysis with these uh, PGP. PGTA softwares um, and specifically with the, ver- the version of the software that used an, uh, an artificial intelligence based platform, it looked at two different versions of that um, of that software. Um, the first being uh, an earlier version um, called PGT AI 1.0, um, which was still an, an artificial intelligence based platform, but used a single method. To determine if the embryo biopsies had the correct versus incorrect number of chromosomes, and they compared that to a later version of the technology, PGT AI 2.0, which uses two methods to determine chromosome amount. Um, it, it's been a you know a question in in the PGT field, um, and in particular uh, one that's very active today of whether adding more data points and having more data analysis to PGTA can better predict healthy versus unhealthy embryos. And this analysis sought to explore that question.
0: Thanks, Christine. Um, So, Tony, if I um, pass over to you, can you explain Um, what the results um, showed and the difference that we saw between that subjective subjective technology versus the artificial intelligence for these patient groups.
2: Yeah, thanks, Molly. Um, Thanks, Christine. You know, I think um, we all kind of get quite excited about technology, being scientists and adding more technology and adding more content. And I think this is kind of where we have to move to, to actually show, see whether it has impact. And it was a really nice study, as Christine described, because it was longitudinal from the same center. So, as many of the variables as possible were the same. So, we can look at the subjective analysis, our first iteration of our own sequencing platform for PGTA, which was the 1.0 platform. And then, as Christine says, the 2.0 platform. Um, and, you know, when we look, there's some statistically significant trends between the subjective analysis and the AI 1.0 and 2.0, primarily that in um, age groups up to 40, you saw more euploids from the 1.0 and 2.0. That's probably because we just have more data, we can reduce a lot of the noise and see true signal. So we're, um, we're able to more clearly call euploids. Um, similar with aneuploids, there was uh, slightly fewer aneuploids um statistically significant in the under 35s and under 37s so you know that was good mosaicism is probably one of the really interesting ones where we saw some of the biggest differences because mosaicism that's where you have um something which isn't euploid and which isn't aneuploid and it's a mixture of those two cell types in a biopsy and technically they're the hardest to um hardest to detect and hardest to measure because you've kind of got that mixture of um, euploid and aneuploid. And looking at the um, results from this particular paper, that was where we saw some of the most significant drops in terms of the numbers of mosaics that we call. So for the under 35s, we went from 20% mosaics called to around 15%. And then that was statistically significant. Uh, And then in something like the 38 to 40-year-old groups, we saw again drops in mosaicism and we saw drops in mosaicism right across the board for all age groups, which was a nice consistent trend. So we saw really nice changes in terms of the um, the euploid aneuploid mosaicism. But then actually when we moved on to look at what was the outcome of that in the the clinic, um, what we were able to see was that we didn't really see much difference in implantation and clinical pregnancy, they were a little bit higher in our 2.0 than the previous two types. The areas that were really interesting were we saw a statistically significant reduction in biochemical loss with PGT AI 2.0 versus both the PGTI 1.0 and the subjective analysis. But really the kind of take home message, which we were delighted to see, was that we saw an increase in ongoing live birth rate, which is really what we're here for in the AI 2.0 results versus the AI 1.0 or subjective calls. And that was particularly pleasing to see that. So that was really really sort of the, the most interesting take from us.
0: Thanks, Tony. So, yeah, a mixture of some interesting and importantly um, statistically significant results there, um, which is really good to see. Um, And Jenna, um, if we were to kind of carry out any follow up studies following on from this paper, um, do you have any recommendations of ways that this study could be strengthened or or improved or looked into from a different perspective?
3: yeah thanks, Molly. Um so this was, as was mentioned, a, a single center study, and there are benefits to doing a single center study um, because a lot of the variability between different IVF labs can be controlled for. But it would be good to see this replicated in other centers to see if the same trends hold um or maybe in a larger sample size. I, I would be interested to see maybe even a multi-center. although like I said, there, there are some variables there that are difficult to control for. Um, in this study by NYU, they did do that breakout by age group. I would like to see more data on that as well from other centers or multiple centers, maybe some with some more um, with a larger N. I think that would be interesting to see do those age trends hold as well um you know euploidy increasing across the board um or mosaicism decreasing um across the board versus in in specific age groups um so those are some of the things that that i think of and i believe that were cited in the paper as well as next steps
2: there was there was just a couple of other things which i was going to mention and uh, i actually um, I was going to ask Christine, and I forgot to mention earlier. So, one of the things that's cool about the AI uh, analysis is that it's completely devoid of a kind of human touch in the analysis. So, it's fully automated and automated into reports, which um, reduces the risk of transcribing errors. You know, people, humans make mistakes if you do enough reports. And I think Christine's going to mention some of our research about that later, but also. Um, You know, we saw a reduction in biochemical loss, which I think was quite a surprise from the PGT-AI 1.0 to the 2.0. I don't know whether Christine or Jenna, you had any thoughts on that? I was quite surprised to see that reduction in biochemical loss because the the spontaneous abortion rates that we saw Mm -hmm. were reduced from subjective to AI 1.0 and 2.0, but there was no real difference in the 1.0, 2.0. I mean, what we see is aneuploidy it's not really kind of what we expect, I think, to see as impacting biochemical loss.
1: Yeah, Tony, I think that's that's a really interesting topic, you know, and I think that um, we've actually seen that in a few um, studies that look at PGTA, right, that um, it does seem to, and I'm, I'm thinking um, a lot about uh, outcomes we've seen after transfer of mosaic embryos. Um, where you know there's a, a lot of if mosaics are going to miscarry, um, there's uh, you know frequent there's a frequency that they may mis- you know represent as biochemical losses, um, and so I think it's also then really interesting to see um, as you know our technology has has progressed and you know we become more confident in being able to discern the difference between a euploid and and, and a mosaic, for example. Um, that we're seeing the uh, improvement in, in biochemical loss rates. Um, so I think it, it really does represent, uh, you know, the technology is getting stronger, the, um, the importance of adding more data points and, and more analysis to improve um, PGTA you know, predictions of overall embryo health. Uh, and in particularly, you know, in, in the, the area of mosaicism um, or you know potentially discerning between, for example, a high-level uh, mosaic, which does still have some uh, reproductive potential, versus a true aneuploid, um, which you know many studies have shown do not.
2: Yeah, and really interesting, Christine. And you know, maybe that comes back to the reduction in mosaicism that we saw between the AI 1.0 uh, and the 2.0, and the m- large reduction we saw between subjective and the two AI-based aneuploidies
1: exactly yeah i think that you know mosaicism is always going to represent you know we we know that it's it's you know a biologic phenomenon um and it's it's always going to represent a a gray area and the the technology and the field for us but you know adding at an analysis you know like uh ai and um and, and further data points with pgti 2.0 at least helps to to narrow the uh the gray area hopefully and, and allow the, you know, a little bit more clarity on what is black and what is is white.
0: So I guess speaking as we speak about mosaicism and other kind of hot topics in PGT, um, do you think we'll see any interesting research this year or have we got any future publications around PGT that we're focusing on um, this year?
1: Absolutely, of course. You know that we
0: we love to participate
1: in this in this area, um, and I think Tony already alluded to it. But we had a uh, an abstract and oral presentation at ASRM last year that we were particularly pleased with. Um, it was presented by Nick Paulina, one of our uh, genetic counseling um, team members, and and it focused on um, uh, outcomes that we self reported to the field regarding. Uh, investigations that we launched uh, around our PGTA results when perhaps a prenatal test or an outcome later following that transfer of an embryo, um, you know, made some questions around the original PGTA result, um, And we were you know, happy to, to communicate to the field that we have a very comprehensive and open investigation process to work through uh, those results and those circumstances with clinics. Um, but furthermore actually presented uh, the our our findings of uh, those investigations over the the past several years Um, and we are reassured to be able to you know show the the field that uh, such uh, questions of PGTA results come in at a very, very low rate. Um, uh, But also to to demonstrate that um, You know, it's not often that the the laboratory is at fault, but in the in the past when there has been a laboratory error, they are heavily skewed towards those manual transcription errors, um, which, you know, underscores the the, another benefit of uh, using an automated platform such as uh, PGTA 2.0. Um, In fact, we saw our uh, manual transcription errors, as you might imagine, um, go to zero after launching that technology. Um, And we definitely plan to follow up on on a few points of of that abstract and and, and get it into publication um, this year.
0: Okay, so now we're gonna turn to the latest research published about endometrial receptivity testing. So here we're going to focus on an independent study by O'Hara et al, um, which focused specifically on recurrent implantation failure, also known as RIF patients. Um, This um, data found that better outcomes um, being ongoing clinical pregnancy, live birth rates and reductions in miscarriages um, for these patients who were using personalised embryo transfer compared to those in the study who had embryo transfer without ER testing. Um, so I guess starting around the definition of RIF patients. Um, so Tony, what are RIF patients and why is it important to focus research, research on this patient group?
2: Yeah, um, repeat implantation failure, RIF as we uh, shorten it to, they're a really important group of patients and it can be very traumatic. The patients can have perfectly good viable embryos that they implant and time after time they don't get to even a biochemical pregnancy, Um, quite a heartbreaking kind of um, condition. So it's one that really is quite difficult to treat, Um, you know, there can be sort of physical issues with the the uterus, Uh, there could be maybe some genetic factors, um, but essentially There's not so many things that you can do for these patients. Um, And for us, for repeat implantation failure, it's quite an odd one because there's no kind of WHO defined uh, number of implantation failures. Um, It's two for some countries and three for others. Uh, And it becomes really important because uh, endometrial receptivity testing, which we're talking about here in this O'Hara Et al. study where we're looking to try and find the correct time to implant into the uterus those IVF embryos, and um, that um, the the studies that we're looking for are really trying to aim to find those repeat implantation failure patients. And there's been another a number of studies that have tried to look at wider patient populations, really through randomised controlled trials and meta-analysis, haven't seen benefits to uh, endometrial receptivity window of implantation testing
0: okay thank you so other publications haven't shown kind of this degree of benefit for those RIF patients
2: uh, yeah the the other pa- publications are not RIF patients they're general or comer publications so there's two randomized controlled trials just in the recent last couple of months and are a meta-analysis and i think we define and we look at this test really for the repeat implantation failure patients and the group in the O'Hara study is um, definitely repeat implantation failure patients. I think the average number of previous attempts was five. So it's quite okay. a significant number of implantations.
0: And off the top of your head, do you remember how many patients were involved in the study? Um, and then if we could go into a bit of detail about the findings for those patients, that would
2: be yeah. great. Yeah, there was uh, just under a thousand patients that were uh, Um, inducted into the study but the actual treatment and intervention versus control so the patients that got um a um, er peak test and had a change window of implantation was 244 versus a control of 306 it's quite a large study group uh, and What they also did to match it even better to those 244, they took the nearest 244, which is known as a um, propensity score matching analysis, to see how those two groups could compare as closely as possible. So quite a significant study.
0: Yeah, definitely. And Christine, were there any additional findings um, as part of this research?
1: Yeah, and You know, with these results, in fact, the the improvements with ER testing were quite significant. Um, The study found that across all the age groups, um, in this study, pregnancy rates were doubled, um, birth rates were tripled uh, for the patient group that did receive the ER testing compared to the the patient group that did not. And miscarriage rates were also reduced by 50% for this group of recurrent implantation failures patients who did receive the ER testing. And that's a really great result for a group of patients that um you know it it, it means a lot to. So as Tony was mentioning with the um how the patients were closely matched to, to one, uh, one another with the propensity scoring they um I think another th- important thing to consider with this study is that the P.G.T.A., um, which we were just talking about, um, was not included. Um, So these uh, embryos were selected for transfer based on morphology alone. Um, So what the the authors further did was to to look at uh, patients that were considered to be advanced maternal age versus younger patients um, to make sure that the the study findings held true um, across age groups. And in fact, they they did find that the the outcomes did hold across uh, age groups, which were um, significant increases in um, both um, pregnancy rates, um, as well as um, uh, live birth and a significant decrease in miscarriage rates as well. And those were found in both younger and older patients, which is really interesting.
0: So Jenna, based on both of the papers that we've been discussing, um, we've seen significant increases in ongoing pregnancy and live birth rates. Um, how important is it that a publication shows this kind of data, and what kind of outcomes should patients pay attention to when they're looking at or reading reading these studies?
3: Yeah, um, I would say that these uh, these clinical outcomes uh, are are critical. It's critical that we study this. You know, from the time that. That we at Cooper moved to artificial intelligence, we immediately saw an increase in in euploidy rates and a decrease in mosaic rates, and that's great. Um, and that has held since since we started using that technology in 2018. But what remained to be answered is, does that actually make a difference to patients as As Tony was alluding to earlier? We can add all the data points we want and all the, the fancy new technology, but if if it doesn't actually make a difference to patient outcomes, then maybe it's not actually worth it. So these studies are impactful because it really shows that the goal of all of this has been successful, that we are seeing more babies born and fewer uh, negative outcomes for our patients. That's our that's our whole goal. Um, interestingly, there have been a lot of studies coming out lately um, that look at PGTA from the perspective of cumulative live birth rates. That's if you do an IVF cycle, in, in this case, you do PGTA, and then you transfer all the embryos, or maybe you don't do PGTA, and then you transfer all the embryos from that cycle. Um, what's what's the difference between people who do and don't do PGTA? Do they have significant, um, do they have a significant cumulative live birth rate if they use all their embryos from a cycle, either all their euploid ones or all the ones that weren't tested? And <clears throat> it's interesting that a lot of people are looking at this right now, just because we don't expect PGTA to significantly impact cumulative live birth rate. So if anyone is seeing those publications and um, and is thinking that they discount the utility of PGTA, I would encourage them to reconsider that because um, PGTA doesn't change the, the hand you're dealt, if you will. It doesn't change the genetic makeup of the embryos you have. If you have five embryos from a cycle and one of them is euploid, um, if you transfer all those embryos, you're going to get one baby. If you only transfer the euploid one, you are also only going to get one baby. So um, cumulative live birth rates are not expected to be impacted by pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. But there are other things that we can look at to um, to measure the utility of PGTA. One of the big ones, and and actually some of these studies that have come out have seen this, these cumulative live birth rate focused Mm -hmm. papers. They've looked at uh, things like time to pregnancy and miscarriage rates. So although cumulatively over time, uh, there may be no difference between the number of babies born in in groups of patients who use PGTA versus don't. What we do find is that the patients who use PGTA tend to achieve pregnancy sooner because they're using that euploid embryo right away rather than um, having implantation failure from aneuploid embryos that they're transferring one at a time. Um, and they we also see a reduction in miscarriage since we know that aneuploid embryos um, have an increased chance of miscarriage. In general, I find sometimes that uh, folks in our field can be a little glib about the 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 um, outcome of miscarriage and and the importance of avoiding miscarriage if we can for patients. Um, I get the uh, I get the the instinct to just want to transfer every embryo and give the patient every possible chance, but we really need to. That should be a discussion with the patient about the pros and cons of that and how comfortable they are with the possible outcome of a miscarriage. So some of those things I think are important to look at um, in addition to the, the outcomes of um, of live birth rate and some of these other things that we've been looking at throughout this study, these two studies. Um, time to pregnancy miscarriage rates uh really Really impactful for patients, for real life patients actually going through this process and trying to create their families um, as efficiently as possible.
2: I think and,
3: and um, to your point, oh,
2: sorry. So I was just going to say, I think Christine and I would completely agree with what you said. <laughs> and I was just going to go back and ask you, Christine, about the O'Hara paper, because I think, um, you know, we saw in that real seriously uh repeat implantation failure group with those five or more previous failed cycles we saw you know a huge increase in live birth rates from uh you know just over nine percent to just under 30 percent you know threefold um which was a pretty poor live birth rate to start but the miscarriage rate was also really reduced and that was a bit of a surprise for a, for a repeat implantation failure test
1: um it is or it isn't right because i think there's still so much that we have to learn about implantation um you know and i think that most of the um the miscarriage reduction in that study was likely in the the biochemical early pregnancy range you know and i think that there is a um, a bit of a gray area, because be, you know, between when implantation starts and when it ends, and a you know, an actual sec, you know, successful pregnancy occurs. Um, so, you know, I, I think it, it may be surprising, um, but I think it certainly highlights uh, you know, very fruitful areas for future research to to understand, um, you know, the the, the connection between implantation achievement and um, successful ongoing pregnancy. But Jen, I was going to say, you know, to, to your point about um, cumulative live birth rates and the and you know studies that have looked at that, I think it's also important to um, reflect that those are very studies are very carefully controlled environments um, where you know, patients are consented, you know, this is the study that you're going to um, embark on, this is what we're going to do. Um, that that doesn't always translate to to real life. Um, you know, we know um, obviously that patients don't always, after several failed transfers, they they don't always carry on. Um, you know, so to to you know go through each and every embryo, or they may decide to leave you know, some embryos at their original IVF clinic and move to another one and and, and try again with maybe perhaps a different provider. Uh, so I think that in real world experience, I don't know that we actually do know for sure, right, that um, PGTA would not increase uh, cumulative live birth rate or, you know, live birth rates as, you know, actually happens, um, you know, with with patients in real life.
3: That makes sense. I get what you're saying, because how many patients who have a bunch of failed transfers are actually going to end up transferring all the embryos in their cohort Mm -hmm. um, before they essentially burnout. That's a good point. I
2: I was thinking about your example of five, Jenna, where you have one euploid and, you know, what if the dice are unlucky and you roll it and you go for uh, transfers and, you know, the fifth one you transfer is that euploid. How many people will actually go through four failed, um, maybe, you know, um, cycles uh, with, you know, you might be a couple of years down the line with advanced maternal age and you're desperate. So you might go for another cycle again it's it's tough and I think as Christine says it's real world how many people um really will have the sort of stamina financial emotional to go through mm-hmm. those fail cycles really impactful
1: mm-hmm. and Tony I think you see a little bit even when you read through the study design of the uh the papers that look at cumulative live births sometimes they note that um they have more patients in the the arm with PGTA because they had a hard time convincing patients to move forward with the study if they knew they weren't getting PGTA or um, you know if they if they knew they had been randomized to to that. Um, there's you know more dropout in that arm. Um, so yeah, indeed, real real world versus science. Uh, I know we are scientists, we love science, um, but at the end of the day, we do uh, live in a in a real world.
0: Okay so yeah thanks everyone for some great discussion there. Um, I think a lot of the conversation has been kind of focused on these patients that are facing further challenges in their IVF cycles being whether it be RAF or miscarriage and I think recognizing the impact of these um, situations for every individual patient um, is something that you're all acknowledging and I think it's really great to see our commitment to technology that's actually improving real life outcomes and that we have the research to back up um I guess the progress that we've seen with as we've changed and developed the technology um so it's really great to great to see um and thank you all for talking um to us about that today um so yeah if you would like to speak to any of our genomics experts about our latest genetic tests then please head over to our fertility website Um, and thank you for listening to the episode today. Um, Please remember to like, share and comment and tune in to our next episode. Thank you.